Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought. Dialogue. Dialoguejournal.com. Dialogue. Dialogue journal. Dialogue. Dialogue. It's the 50th anniversary of Dialogue. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Morris Thurston. Today we're privileged to hear from Pulitzer Prize-winning historian and Harvard University professor Laurel Thatcher Ulrich. She'll be discussing plural marriage and women's rights in early Mormonism. I think you'll enjoy it, and be sure to stick around for the Q&A section at the end. Finally, remember that dialogue depends on the generosity of its listeners and subscribers to keep it financially viable please consider making a donation on our website at dialoguejournal.com. And thank you so much. And now to our podcast featuring Professor Ulrich speaking to a gathering of the Miller-Eccles Study Group in Orange County, California. The next voice you hear will be my wife, Dawn, introducing Laurel. When I was living in Boston in the late 60s, Basically, a newlywed at the time in my early 20s who didn't know a lot about anything at that time. I was what used to be called the work director, which is now the homemaking leader in our ward, uh, which was a student ward. And I visited Laurel's house to pick up something we were going to use as a craft project. And that was really my only interchange with her because she actually attended the, the ward for members who were not students at the time in Cambridge, and her husband, Gail Ulrich, was the... And I didn't... Did we introduce no. you? Well, no. I've been here before. Oh, Stan. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> I was here a couple of years ago when she lectured yeah, before. It's true, so. but you need to be recognized. Well, so, we so are, you've already introduced Okay, well, it's good to have you with us. Okay. Well, when we were living in Boston, Gail was the bishop of the ward that served the people who were the local residents in Boston. At that time, Laurel had four of her five children, and she had earned a BA in English from the University of Utah, and where she was valedictorian, but I didn't know that. Uh, she seemed like a traditional Mormon mother and homemaker something that I then aspired to be at least as much as I could for being a convert from Southern California. That was before she received her master's degree in English from Simmons College and her PhD in history from the University of New Hampshire, where she would teach for 15 years. That was before she published A Midwife's Tale for which she earned the Pulitzer Prize the Bancroft Prize, and numerous other awards before she worked on the PBS documentary based on that book. That was before she published Good Wives, The Age of Homespun, and a number of other highly regarded scholarly publications that grew her career and reputation as an historian. She currently teaches at Harvard and has been president of the American Historical Association a MacArthur Fellow, and President of the Mormon History Association. Some who don't know all this about her may still recognize her name because of her famous slogan, well-behaved women seldom make history, which has appeared on t-shirts, coffee mugs, bumper stickers, 
and posters at protest marches for decades now. I saw it on a poster at the Women's March in Santa Ana last month. She penned that slogan in a scholarly article she wrote in 1976, though it has sometimes been attributed to Gloria Steinem, <laughs> Shakespeare, and many others. In our social media age, when a statement like, still she persisted, applied to Elizabeth Warren last week, can go viral, and t-shirts, coffee mugs, and works of art are broadcast on Facebook this week. It's quite remarkable that Laurel's slogan has persisted and still has traction 40 years later. Some have said that Laurel's work and writings have shown a light on the silent work of ordinary people, particularly women. She is admired and loved far and wide by historians and all the rest of us for being an extraordinary woman, far more than the traditional Mormon mother I took her to be nearly 50 years ago. Thank you, Don. It's great to be introduced by somebody who does this kind of biographical history, so it's wonderful. And thank you all for coming in this really, really amazing night. Although, aren't you all out celebrating and giving <laughs> thanks? <laughs> Prayerful thanks for rain? Yes. Um, I, you know, when I think, oh no, I came to get away from snow and ice, I can't feel bad for California. <laughs> So I've given another, a number of talks this week, and it's always a challenge to know this is a long book, yeah. and it can't be... You want to put it behind on the mantle? I don't know if that's easier for This, is, this okay. is fine. Right. It's hard to know what part of a book to emphasize, and I've decided tonight, partly through the advice of my husband who's listened at several of these talks this week, <laughs> that I'm going to um, talk about one person, one diarist. There are probably a couple of dozen diarists in the book and far more individuals whose names show up and float through the text, sometimes to the confusion of readers. But one diarist focuses in great measure on California. And so I thought maybe it would be interesting to focus on Caroline Barnes Crosby. How many of you know about Caroline Barnes Crosby? She's, um, you're gonna learn, she's a very interesting character. But um, one thing that's even better about her is that um, she and her relative, her sister, um, Louisa Pratt, who was married to Addison Pratt, received the attention of the historian George Ellsworth, who launched a project of transcribing and publishing the diaries of this remarkable family. And he didn't complete Caroline's diary until his death, and Leo Lyman and some others picked up and helped. She lived for a long time in San Bernardino. So I thought she was a good person to focus on this evening. 
On January 5th, 1856, her 49th birthday, Caroline Crosby opened her diary and wrote, what a life of wandering for 21 years. Previous to that time, I lived in the one town, scarcely knowing the change. I scarcely know which was the most agreeable, for the Lord has comforted me in my travels and I have realized his guardianship in thousands of instances. What a life of wandering. She was born in 1807 in Dunham, Lower Canada, which was an English-speaking settlement just over the Vermont border in Quebec. And she began her life of wandering in the early 1830s when she married Jonathan Crosby, a Massachusetts native who was already a Mormon. And those of you in this room, I think most of you are Mormons, and you know what that means if you join the church in the 1830s. It's an early convert. So they started out in Kirtland. They didn't make it to Missouri. They tried. They didn't get there before the states were driven out. They settled in Nauvoo. Uh, Carolyn gave birth to their only child, a son, in Kirtland, whom they named Alma. Isn't that interesting? And Jonathan worked on the Kirtland Temple and gained woodworking skills that really sustained them for the rest of their lives. With other Latter-day Saints, they fled Nauvoo and went across the plains in the classic trek in the second year of the migration, and they arrived in the Salt Lake Valley in October 1848. So all of this sounds very conventional, very Mormon, just what Mormons are supposed to do in that period. But her life was not conventional because she was related to Louisa, her sister, who had married a whaler named Addison Pratt, who had, after joining the church, left Nauvoo and his family in 1843 as a missionary, one of the first missionaries to Polynesia. And he took a ship out of New Bedford, Massachusetts, hoping to go to the Sandwich Islands or Hawaii, but the only ship he could get was going to Tahiti. <laughs> so he, he was in Tahiti, until 1847, his family almost lost track of him. He lost track of the church, finally figured out that they, where they were and that they were heading um, somewhere, he thought, to California. He got a ship to California, found out that they were actually moving on, to, uh, going to the Salt Lake Valley, but there were a lot of Mormons in California by then because of the ship Brooklyn, Samuel Brannan, and the Mormon Italian boys, veterans who had been mustered out in San Diego and moved north to Sutter's Fort. So Addison met some of the battalion boys at Sutter's Fort and helped to pioneer a trail across the mountains to the Salt Lake Valley, and he arrived about exactly the same time as Louisa and his daughters arrived from winter quarters into the Salt Lake Valley. 
and the littlest children didn't know who he was, were terrified of him. And when Carolyn and Jonathan arrived, they said he looked just as natural as could be. In fact, he looked a lot better than Louisa. Carolyn hadn't seen Louisa for about a year, and Louisa had lost her front teeth. <laughs> Partly through the horrors of scurvy and other issues in winter quarters. It's just a terrible time. So they have this great reunion, and this guy, Addison Pratt, you know, he did his best in Utah that first winter. He gave lessons in Tahitian. He displayed his seashells. They tried to, you know, improve the cabin in the fort where they were living. And the Crosbys were musicians, and so were Louisa's girls, and there were a lot of parties and a lot of singing. But when some men wanted to go to California, needed to go for some reason, have the approval of Brigham Young, who would they get to guide them back across that trail than Addison Pratt, who was delighted to join them, and even more delighted when he convinced Brigham Young that there was more work to be done in this Tahiti and to why. So he left and he said to Louisa, please follow. <clears throat> Louisa didn't know whether that was such a great idea. She was terrified of going and so she whispered in the ear of Mary Ann Young, Brigham Young's first wife. Do you think Brigham would be willing to call Caroline and Jonathan on a mission to the South Pacific. And he did. They were stunned and they went along with their son, Alma. So Caroline Crosby spent 18 months on the French-held island of Dubai, returning to California in the autumn of 1852 Jonathan found plenty of work in the growing economy of San Francisco and San Jose, then in, then in San Francisco. And three years later, they moved to San Bernardino, um, the settlement, as you know, founded in 1851 as a kind of way station between Utah and the Pacific. Okay, so she meant what she said. What a life of wandering. She's now in San Bernardino. She's looking back, you know, starting out in Quebec and all the places she's lived. Going back through her diary, we can determine that in the eight years of keeping a daily diary, she began it on the Overland Trail. She had moved in and out of more than 30 dwellings, covered wagons, shanties, log and adobe cabins, a Polynesian cottage, a cellar kitchen, rooms in an old Spanish mission, and a house made of green lumber plastered with paper. <laughs> Entering a makeshift structure in California that smelled like a stable, she consoled herself by thinking that if the baby Jesus could dwell in such a place, she could too. Recording her day-to-day -day activities in the diary, I think, kept her from feeling her life was aimless. 
think of that word. What a life of wandering. Very interesting selection of words. Children wander. Cattle wander and get lost. A traveler knows where she's going. A pioneer expects to settle down. But a wanderer lived in uncertainty. Now, how did she cope with this uncertainty? It's interesting. She copes with this uncertainty in the ways that just drive some people crazy when they try to read the diary. What I did today, seemingly mundane, as mundane in many respects, although a little more voluble than Martha Ballard, those of you who know the Martha Ballard diary. You know, the weather, what time I got up, I went to church, I did this, I did that. But she could, she could capture a moment. So when they came across the mountains from Utah, and they decided they got as far as Sacramento, it was 1850, um, not much... Uh, accommodation there, they decided to take a sailboat on the Sacramento River to San Francisco. They'd come a long way with wagons and horses. And here's how she describes it. Found the mosquitoes on board before us and standing ready with open jaws to devour us. <laughs> then she added, we desire to let patience have her perfect work. Odd statement in this kind of routine, matter-of-fact kind of diary. Anybody recognize? From the epistle of James in the New Testament. <laughs> Let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. I mean, she used this strategy over and over again. These little stray quotations that come in the diary that give you hints of how she's thinking about the word, world. In San Francisco in the autumn of 1855, she noted that all the Mormon houses in the city were full of strangers, saints just arrived from foreign lands, flocking like clouds and doves to their windows. Where does that one come from, Craig? That one I'll have to think about. <laughs> Anybody? Isaiah. Yeah, Noah's Ark. Isaiah. It's Isaiah. from Isaiah, and it's about the gathering. The strangers coming in and flocking like doves, doves to the windows. Clearly for Caroline, it was about the Latter-day gathering. And I really think after spending 10 years working on the early Mormon experience from 1835 to 1870 through the lens of personal diaries, not through the lens of the kind of epic history of the church or through the lens of the you know, Brigham and Joseph and the Revelations, but through the ordinary people. I really think you know, if you go out of limb here, at least as important, maybe more important in creating the suffering, the struggles, and the external opposition 
than plural marriage, which gets a lot of attention in my book, is the concept of gathering. Don't just join the church. You wander. <coughs> you may hope to settle, but what happens? I love the diary of Samuel Woolley, who described one of our relatives, Samuel Woolley, who was the most taciturn diary, diarist I've ever seen. Day one, clear, went to the store. He was a his storekeeper in his brother's store. Clear, went to the store. He said that on August 25th. August 26th, August 27th, and August 28th, he had a little bit more to say. Went to conference. About 200 missionaries called to foreign lands. I was called to Hindustan. Clear. Went to the store. <laughs> now, he came through San Francisco on his way to Hindustan as many missionaries did. He didn't convert anybody in Hindustan, <laughs> but he was a loyal missionary and kept that diary going all the way across the Pacific and then back across the Atlantic. So he left from San Francisco, came back through Boston, and then earned the right to have an earring in his ear, <laughs> which is, shows up even in his very distinguished bishops photographs <laughs> later in the 19th century. Now, Samuel Woolley didn't seem to convert anyone in Hindustan. He really tried. But somebody else did. Some of those 1852 missionaries that went to Hindustan were successful. And one day when um, Caroline Crosby goes to church, she meets a man named William Tate, who's a red-headed Scot who had joined the British Army and had then served in India. And he was one of the converts from India. And here's this guy coming in to church with a little three-year-old boy, his three-year-old son, actually two-year-old son, Johnny. And Caroline is just astounded. Where did this kid come from? And he told Caroline a very poignant story. He had all the baggage of the household packed on a ship at Calcutta. And he had gone with Johnny. And his wife was supposed to follow and arrive just in time for the ship to sail. And she either was pregnant or appeared to have had a very tiny daughter. It's a little unclear. But anyway, she never arrived. And here he is. He gets to Hong Kong, and he finds a letter from her. And it's very, very interesting. She is born in Bombay. Some of the genealogy says she's of Portuguese descent comes from an educated family. Her, her photographs, uh, she lived a long time. I mean, she's, she's Indian or African. And there they are. And the letter said her mother would not let her leave 
but that she had now persuaded her that she could leave on the next ship and she would come and meet William. The problem was the next ship was going to New York, <laughs> not to San Francisco. And so William has to find a way to earn money, to get an outfit, to somehow get to Utah while his wife finds a way to um, this whatever Iowa City, which I think at that point was the jumping off point, get with a Mormon group, probably start with a Mormon group in New York, get with a Mormon group, and they will meet in Salt Lake City. Meanwhile, how's he going to do this? He's got this little kid. So Caroline Crosby becomes the second mother to little Johnny, and she is thrilled. She takes him into her bed when he cries at night. She makes clothing for him. She does laundry for William. And when the time comes, William gets enough together to start his journey. She is just heartbroken, and the baby, too, is crying. Um, and she said she tried to get him to, she tried to keep him and realized that would be a terrible thing to do because the mother is not going to want her son to be left among strangers. So they go off, and then the Crosbys move to San Bernardino, and William is there with Johnny, still trying to find a company that will go across the desert and north up to the Salt Lake Valley. And so he's worried. It's winter. He's got word that his wife is, is, has arrived, um, or is on, is on her way, is on her way, but it's still winter, and he's afraid of taking the little boy with him on this arduous journey, and so Caroline agrees to keep him again. Much, she's just thrilled about that. He makes it to Salt Lake in time to discover that his wife, Elizabeth Xavier Tate, had joined the Willie Handcart Company. Oh. And so he is part of the rescue party that goes out to rescue the Willie Handcart Company. And Caroline gets a letter a few months later in which Elizabeth talks about the death of her daughter. That's all Caroline says, and I haven't been able to find more details. But she has survived. William met her. They have made it into the Salt Lake Valley and are now in Cedar City. And they have a friend who will take Johnny to them in Cedar City if Caroline will prepare him and get him ready and he can rejoin his family. It's sort of an amazing story, but it gets even more amazing. In 1857, Caroline notices in the Los Angeles Star, the newspaper account of a horrendous massacre in India, an uprising of sick soldiers, S-I-K-H, sick soldiers against the British who they believe are using animal fat in greasing the paper of the cartridges they're using and offending 
their religious sensibilities. There's this massacre of civilians. It's just in all the newspapers, the horrors of India. And Carolyn writes, notes this in her diary. I mean, she's tuned in to India at this point. She notes that in her diary. What Caroline doesn't know, and probably never learns, even though she eventually makes their way to Beaver, Utah, and they do reconnect. She sees Johnny again. He remembers her, hugs her, um, and she meets William and meets William's husband. What she doesn't know, but that we know, is that because William Tate had had missionary or had military experience in India, he was made an officer in the militia company in Cedar City and was one of the men in the Mountain Meadow massacre. Claimed he killed no one. Most of the men claimed they killed no one. Kind of an ironic story. We tend to tell Mormon history from east to west, focusing on the pioneer companies. What the Caroline Cosby diary does for us is mix all that up, the geography. And we realize, even thinking about the ship Brooklyn as part of that story, which was the first big company of Mormons to reach the west, is people went north, south, east, and west, and they wandered. They didn't stop. They're heading off on missions. Crazy myth! Leaving their families and going off in these far-flung parts of the world. Um, they're wandering because they're poor. They have to earn money to rejoin the center place of Zion. But what the California stories tell, the amazing encounters, people meeting people they've known before, meeting people they've never heard of, and then the ethnic mixtures which just fascinate me as I read about this. Caroline meets John Eldridge in San Bernardino, who's one of those missionaries in Australia who was shipwrecked as they're leaving Australia. And they're shipwrecked, they lose some of their passengers, they finally have a group of crew on the ship, they get into an uninhabited island in the Pacific. This is a true story. They build a small craft and are able to get to Tahiti and then until they can get a ship to come to San Francisco, and then he ends up at San Bernardino trying to get back to Utah, and there goes to a wedding of Caroline's daughter, and jokes are going back and forth about him from Salt Lake City back to San Bernardino, and these strange, fascinating connections. I could go on and on, but I'm out of time, but some of the stories told in the book that weave in and out of different chapters of the book that come out of Caroline's diary are very, very interesting. She certainly knew Eleanor McLean in San Francisco. She has many references to her in the diary. She was says after Eleanor's baptism, she gave a very zealous testimony in meeting. She was fascinated when she found out that Eleanor's husband had kidnapped their children and sent them to uh, uh, New Orleans and that Eleanor had left to try to retake her children. You all know who Eleanor McLean is. 
she's the ninth wife of Parley P. Pratt, who Parley was trying to help retrieve her children when he was murdered by Eleanor's husband. Caroline doesn't have the whole story. What she has is these intimate connections, cross connections, as the Latter-day Saints wander or travel or pioneer from place to place. Another fascinating one that I can maybe comment briefly in questions because I don't want to keep you longer than you want to keep is, a, is Henry Jacobs. Henry Jacobs, the husband of Zina, Diantha Huntington, Jacobs, Smith, Young. Second general president of the Relief Society, who was married to Henry Jacobs, had three children with Henry Jacobs, but was sealed as one of the, I think, the second or third plural wife of Joseph Smith. And after Joseph Smith's death, she had to essentially to choose. I can stay with Henry. Does Henry want to stay with her? I'm sealed for eternity to Joseph. Who's Henry going to be sealed to? Um, she goes with Brigham Young. <laughs> she has a child by Brigham Young that will be sealed in heaven to Joseph in the way they thought about it at that time. And there are people who write about, oh, Brigham Young taking away Henry's wife. And there are others later, some of her friends saying, oh, he was a, um, Emmeline Wells said, oh, Henry was a highly unsuitable husband for Zina. I mean, so probably there's still arguments among descendants about who stole whose wife. Well, there's a fascinating vignette in here about Henry Jacobs and Caroline Crosby and the three or four day party they have at their house because Henry, like Jonathan Crosby, is a fiddler. And we get a very interesting portrayal of Henry Jacobs in a, in a different focus than we get reading Zionist fabulous diary, one of my favorite diaries and we learn a lot about Zina in the book as well. So I'm going to leave with one last vignette about Caroline Crosby. She was a musician who played the accordion. Um, her husband was not just a fiddler, but could play the flute. They played for dances. They liked to sing. They had singing and dancing parties with um, Agnes Smith, another interesting character in early history, plural wife of Joseph Smith, um, whose daughter later became the poet laureate of California under the name Ina Coolbreath, and she's in Caroline's diary as well. So one day in San Bernardino, Caroline decided to stay behind while her family and friends went on a picnic in the mountains. And, let's see if I've got the right little quote here. I want to get this one right. I may have to make it, yeah, I've got it here. So I won't have to totally make it up. Okay, I felt rather lonely after they were gone and somewhat inclined to murmur at my poverty. 
and lack of the enjoyments which many of my brethren and sisters were blessed with. But I finally took down a piece of select poetry, which I had previously pinned to the wall, and sung it several times over. The text is, it is all for the best. I found much consolation from reading it, and Mary's spirits became cheered and enlivened thereby. Well, I was very curious, because she's quite specific, a piece of select poetry, and she gave me the title of the poem that she had copied and pinned to the wall. So, you know, it's easy now with databases of popular poetry and literature from the 19th <coughs> century, and I discovered there were several anthologies popular at the time that included the same verse from an English poet, um, which begins, All's for the best. Be sanguine and cheerful. Trouble and sorrow are friends in disguise. One edition recommended singing the words to the same music as Never Give Up. <laughs> and I thought there's a little bit of contradiction. The one implies resignation. All's for the best. The other, a kind of spunkiness, never give up. And it seems to me that both models worked very well in Caroline Crosby's life. Thank you. So the fun part, the questions, okay? Comments. <coughs> as well as questions, whatever. I take anything. Some of you have started reading the book. So Laurel, thanks. I think there's a lot of people here who don't know what your book's about. Okay. And if you, I wonder if you would take a few minutes to just kind of give an overview of what your approach was, why you decided to write the book, and maybe some of the key findings you had. <laughs> You got an hour and a half? We've got time. We've got time. Okay. I'm worried about stuff. keeping you too long. <laughs> you know, I could refer you to Radio West or Terry Gross. <laughs> but, okay. The book is called A House Full of Females. Plural Marriage and Women's Rights in Early Mormonism, 1835 to 1870. And those dates are very important. I'm really looking at the period 1835 to 1870, which is the founding generation. And I'm following that founding generation, the women who stood up in 1870 to defend polygamy and to claim the right to vote in the territory of Utah. Plural marriage and women's rights. Who were these women? Where did they come from? How did it happen that they could accept such seemingly contradictory ideas, a seemingly, not seemingly, a patriarchal marriage system and a commitment to women's suffrage and to other reforms in the 19th century? And that contradiction is there in their lives and in their actions, and it does require explanation. One part of the explanation um, has to do with what it takes 
to join the church in that era. So if we think of Phoebe Woodruff, who is one of the leaders, she's 30 years old when she leaves home on her own in, um, to, in Scarborough, Maine, leaves from Scarborough, Maine, and goes to Kirtland. There she meets Wilford, and they marry. He's 30, she's 30. They both sacrificed, painfully left families and other obligations to become Latter-day Saints. They really are a marriage of equals, um, spunky women. True, there are other women like Zina, who is part of a family who joins the church and comes to Kirtland. But then Zina faces this incredible challenge of plural marriage in Nauvoo and does become a very powerful leader of women in early Utah. So how, how do these things go together? How does a seemingly conservative religious faith and being, by the end of the 19th century, there are more members of the American National Association of Women's Suffrage proportioned to population in Utah than any other state or territory in the nation. And um, it's real. Um, in 1870, these women, Sarah Kimball stands up in a meeting in the upper floor of the uh, 15th Ward Relief Society Hall, which was built with money raised by women for women to use. They're holding a meeting, and she says, I'm ready to declare myself a woman's rights woman. And Phoebe Woodruff says, I've been waiting for this for years. And they've been waiting for multiple reasons, because they want to claim their rights as women to choose this religious system. And the government and their neighbors, they've been hounded and driven from place to place, lost their property, seeing their families suffer, and now the federal government is beginning to pass very draconian anti-polygamy legislation. And they don't want any more of that, and they want their rights as citizens, and they stand up. But they also want their spiritual rights and their spiritual authority. The Relief Society Hall that Sarah Kimball organized and built exemplifies that. And within a very few years, there were 100 of those. There were 58 mass meetings of women in Utah in 1870 protesting the anti the pro anti polygamy legislation the quick summary of what i talked about last night at claremont was the struggle they had within the church we most of us who are latter day saints know the story of the relief society being founded in 1842 and what we don't know is in 1846, Brigham Young said to the 70s and to the high priests at Nauvoo, if you see women huddling together in meetings, stop them. They do not have the right to do that. They, if they say Joseph supported it, I know that's a lie. He never encouraged them. Can't be true. We've read the accounts of the founding of the Relief Society. It was true. Not that Joseph didn't support it, 
but that Brigham was furious about the Relief Society because he was furious about Emma, and he forbade formal women's meetings. It took two decades to fully reorganize the Relief Society. It's a lot of what the book is about. Um, <laughs> and it's a complicated story. Um, they did not give up. And they didn't campaign and parade and put well-behaved women seldom make history <laughs> on banners. <coughs> They behaved in really powerful ways, um, and it's worth reading about that. They, what they did is rest on the foundation of spiritual gifts, which no one could take away from them, because those were free to all. According to the New Testament, that had been ratified. Brigham Young couldn't take those away because he was a man who believed Women were responsible for childbirth and child care and health care. And so women are healing the sick. They are managing births, even as in the eastern United States, doctors are beginning to take over some of these things. They maintained the female economy and the female uh, system of guardianship um, in the community cross households. They are not sequestered in individual households. And they met, and in their meetings, whatever kind of meeting they were meeting, they uh, were revelatory moments, which usually involve speaking in tongues and then translating for one another. So they built a very powerful spiritual sisterhood and practical sisterhood, and at various moments when it was um, instrumental for the male leaders to support them, they did launch projects such as preparing clothing for Indians or preparing, um, and some of those societies were called relief societies. But the Relief Societies really didn't establish a firm foundation until about 1867 that sustained forward into the future. And when they did, well, I'll say two other things. As they began organizational activities, and Brigham was, and other male leaders were, comfortable with that because they so needed them. Um, and because they were very supportive of plural marriage and the church in general. As they proceeded in those activities, the church had begun um, compiling some of the first histories of the church. Looking back to Kirtland and Nauvoo and <coughs> gathering the materials together and organizing them, beginning to publish in a linear way the history of the church in the Deseret News. And they invited Eliza to bring her minutes of the Nauvoo Relief Society, which she had kept there and preserved and used at many gatherings of women 
to bring into the church historical office so they could examine them and give an account of um, Joseph Smith's sermon to the Relief Society. And they essentially rewrote it. So it was no longer the classic one is Joseph said, I turn the key to you. And they said, we turn the key in your behalf. And where in Eliza's minutes, it's, I will make of this society a kingdom of priests. It becomes, I will make of the church a, a kingdom of priests and sisters will be blessed as they obey their husbands. I mean, that's not an exact quote, but um, you can compare those. Um, you can, it's in the new 50 Years of Relief Society anthology that I hope every interested, every person interested in history owns. It was a scandalous rewriting. And you know, we haven't had the full text of the minutes of the Nauru Relief Society for very long. And they were published initially digitally on the Joseph Smith papers, and now in that wonderful first 50 years of Relief Society volume. But the sisters knew what was in the minutes. And when the Relief Society finally was getting on a firm footing, Eliza used those minutes to instruct Relief Society presidents all through the territory. So it's, there's a lot in this book. <laughs> there are two dozen diaries used extensively. Um, I did not use memoirs, and I know you all love them, and your family histories are full of them, and I love them too. Um, but I did not want to use them in this book, partly because they they reinforce all the mythological reconstructions of these periods, such as Joe, you know, about the founding of the Relief Society. We've lost that story. We've lost many stories because we get it through the lens of the late 19th century when a lot of things are being kind of cleaned up. I also stayed with the day-by-day -day records, as frustrating as they are, because so much was secret. But I stayed with those because diarists, they lie, they leave things out, of course they do. But they don't know how things are going to turn out. So you get things like, some people embraced polygamy. You know, the myth is, oh, one time I wanted the grave. Not always so. Some people felt that way, other people, no. Why? Why did they embrace it? Well, we have to figure that out by seeing what was the context and how did they feel at the time. Okay, so now I've given you 50 topics you can ask questions about. Yes. So why did Eliza R. Snow marry jo Brigham Young for time when she was already sealed to Joseph Smith? And she wasn't the only woman that you did that. You mean Zina, not Eliza. Eliza R. Snow is, oh, she sealed, she's, oh, Eliza and Zina are sealed to Joseph Smith for eternity. Yeah. And they marry Brigham for time. Yeah, why? Well, because they, they pardon? They wanted to eat. Yeah, but the idea is the, um, the brothers, 
the apostles are going to care for Joseph's wives. And they're going to live in the household of the prophet in their lifetime and be part of his household. So why not? Now, not all of Joseph Smith's wives married Brigham or Heber um, or um, Lyman, a number of, Amasa Lyman, a number, uh, a number of wives just married ordinary men or left the church and didn't come. But most of, the, most of Joseph Smith's plural wives, insofar as we know who all of them are, um, did come west. So that was the pattern that these, and the apostles, they're going to raise up these children who will be, belong to Joseph in the hereafter. Yes. Okay. It's my understanding that shortly before the women in Utah got suffrage, that uh, the women in Wyoming had been given Yeah, it. a few weeks before. And Two there, weeks. there were ten times as many men as women in Wyoming, and very few uh, people, I'm, I can't say very few people, very few white people in Wyoming at the time. In Utah, there were 80,000 uh, voters, and half, roughly half were women. So it was a much bigger deal. Utah had the vote first. I mean, Utah women voted first because they had an election first. Wyoming women made little splash in the national movement. Utah women did. But the motive in Wyoming for doing it was? The motive for Wyoming was, they said, who knows? Maybe it was genuine. You had supermen in Wyoming who really believed in women's rights, or maybe they thought they'd get a lot of good publicity and might get some women to come to Wyoming. <laughs> Do you think that the women in Utah got the idea from Wyoming? No. They got the idea from the fact that Susan B. Anthony had introduced, the, I mean, there was a big national fuss over women's suffrage after, the, after giving uh, the vote to, to free black men. So the women's suffrage movement felt they'd been betrayed. They had worked in the anti-slavery movement and thought it was going to be women's suffrage and male suffrage. <coughs> that suffrage was going to be fully opened up and felt they had been betrayed. And, and it was a national issue. The, the reason the, um, even many of the abolitionists ended up not supporting women's suffrage is they feared they would lose the black vote if those two, I mean, the vote for black men if those two things were linked. It's really controversial. More controversial than plural marriage <laughs> to give women the vote. I mean, the National Amendment isn't passed till 1920. And so people were, there was an article in the New York Times sort of joking, well, if anybody's going to get the vote, why don't we give it to the women of Utah? That will be the easiest way to get rid of plural marriage. <laughs> and the, some, of the, some of the men in some desert news say, well, that's not a bad idea. You know, we trust our women. In the planning meeting to protest the anti-polygamy legislation, the 
release Hassani's sisters who were gathered there um, unanimously supported a resolution to ask the territorial legislature for the vote. They also asked for represent women representatives to go to Congress. So it's a, a false assumption that this was the men thought this up and the women played it out. The women organized the meeting, gave the speeches, no men allowed except reporters. They knew what they were doing. They got a lot of national attention. People were horrified. We're not going to give anybody the vote if women are that stupid. Um, but the Cullen Bill failed in the Senate. And so it took another um, more than a decade to get the Edmunds Tucker and Edmunds Act and then the Edmunds Tucker Act passed. The interplay between the black suffrage and the female suffrage, is that in your book? Yes. Oh, great. Uh, so it's very, it's very short in the book, and there are references where you can find more. Yeah. Okay. Other, that was a great question. Okay, yes. So I've been reading your book, and I've been curious, did you actually read all these diaries yourself? Did you pay research assistance? Oh, no. I, to go? How, you how know, did you find these people? It's like, which ten years. Ten years. <laughs> I did the research in this book. I, in some of my other books, I used research assistance for a few things, but no, I couldn't trust anybody else to do. Some of the diaries, like Caroline's, have been transcribed, and they're part of her diary, some of this, and in published form. Um, but I, it was very important to me to look at the originals of everything because a lot of the evidence is in the handwriting, the papers, the provenance, all of those things. So I, I spent a lot of time reading a lot of diaries and a lot of other documents, but that's what I do. That's fun, <laughs> believe it or not. It's hard work, but it's fun. Yes? I'd like your thoughts on the interview with Terry Gross. Yes. And what you think of her as an interviewer and things like that. Does everybody know Terry Gross yeah. is an interviewer on NPR, um, does a lot of popular culture things, a lot of book interviews. I, it's a real coup to get an interview on Terry Gross, so I thank my publisher for doing that. Um, it was a really tough experience for me, partly because I wasn't as well prepared as I could have been. It was the first interview I'd done on the book, and she was not prepared at all. Um, she'd had to reschedule the interview because she wanted to get it in before she went on vacation. So it's clear uh, she may have read a page or two, and her assistants, who should have done that work, had not done a very good job. Um, I... She was very nice. I never met her, and I understand almost no one does. She was in Philadelphia. I was at WGBH in Boston, and I had earphones, and she had earphones, and it was professionally recorded. We spent an hour and a half, and then she distilled that, and I knew that from the beginning. She said, we edit the interview, so if you misspeak, you just start over. If there's anything you ask that I ask you don't want to talk about, you just tell me, but I'm sure that won't happen. And then, of course, 
partly into the interview, um, she was clearly less interested in the book than how a Harvard professor could be a Mormon. Oh, oh so, my gosh. Uh, that was uncomfortable. I have not listened to that interview because I came home and felt like I was such a total failure <laughs> and not even inarticulate. But other people have said, oh, it came out great. And so I think she's got super editors <laughs> that were able to pick out the coherent parts of the interview. So it's very nice. And, of course, she has that lovely voice. You did a wonderful job, too. I, I, did, I hope so. I did okay. I didn't embarrass anybody. <laughs> okay, back here. So, about the, the plural marriage, um, somewhere along the story of my life, I, I picked up on an explanation uh, that this was because uh, somewhere along the lines that they if the men went out on a mission or if, if they died then they have the women living by themselves on a farm or something. It was yeah. this crude story about something that kind of had some vague truths that kind of resonated and, and somewhere along the line I always felt like I wanted to ask somebody this question which is like isn't there more especially from a diary standpoint um that it might have been more for companionship. And, and I know it's a patriarchal society, but couldn't it have been from both ends? Okay, a that that's a really good and important question. And the theme that plural marriage provided companionship for women and support and pioneering and so on, there's a lot of logic to that. But the why of plural marriage is in the 132nd section of the Doctrine and Covenants, which is a terrifying document from my point of view. Joseph Smith did not explain why plural marriage. And apparently, if that revelation is from God, God didn't explain it either, except God gave Abraham his multiple lives and the other polygamists in the Old Testament, and that this was ordained of God. And then the really scary part is, I mean, you read it, you think about it. It is not a, an explanation that anybody's going to be satisfied with. And that was it. And that, my description of how that revelation came about is very well documented and there is no question whatsoever that Emma Smith was furious. And she said it came from the devil. So, something as Latter-day Saints need to understand and recognize, particularly Mormon feminists like me, we have to understand that plural marriage created a rift between Emma and Joseph, but a rift in the church. The majority of Joseph's followers stayed with Brigham Young. The majority of members of the First Relief Society went west, but a significant number did not. And it was a rift in the community of women. If you think about this, Emma Smith was president of the First Relief Society and it was a 
for the women in later generations, those, that was just a supreme spiritual experience that couple of years when they created that society and Joseph spoke to them and their spiritual longings were ratified and made great promises to them, which some of them associated with plural marriage and some of them did not. And so the <coughs> Emma stayed behind, claimed that her husband never had any other wives, and Emma's best friends went with Brigham and taught succeeding generations that they had been sealed to him. So it's a really tough story to think about. Now, how it functioned is a different question. And I think, and I think you're right. I think it functioned not because people are alone on farms, because these are not isolated farms. These are small communities where Mormons settle. It functioned because men and women made it function, particularly women, and it functioned because there was a, a no-fault divorce, which I certainly didn't know um, until I did this research. There was a lot of divorce, and the idea was you're supposed to be living a celestial law, and you're supposed to be making each other happy, and better to part if you can't do that. So there's um, very few of the men who had many wives um, managed to keep them all. George Albert Smith did, and maybe one reason he did, and I have quite a bit from Bathsheba Smith and Lucy Mazur Smith, his wives who left great letters, and they all lived in different towns. <laughs> he must have been amazing. They were all in love with him and wrote love letters to him. It's an interesting a. phenomenon. Huh? Who, George A. Smith? George A. Smith. Yeah. Yeah, the original. George A. Yeah. Have you, um, when you bring him up in the plural marriage, um, B.H. Roberts' autobiography, uh -huh. uh, when, he taught, when he went on his mission, he was in Tennessee at the time of Kentucky, but George A. Smith came to his mission with three of his wives. And B.H. Roberts, of course, being so eloquent, mm -hmm. he, he has provided for me the only insight as to what this doctrine means and will mean in the future. Um, section 132 is doctrine. Mm -hmm. His description of what he saw and observed with George A. Smith and those two wives of his visiting the mission is, is absolutely um, eye-opening in terms of a practical implementation or, or practice of that doctrine. And it, it's the only, I call it a glimpse, because that is all it is. I'm with you. I, the prospect of it terrifies me. You, you talk like it's going to come back? I talk like <laughs> it will be the next life. And uh, hmm. uh, Section 132, I, I believe that. You know, the head note now, and the Gospel topic essay says monogamy is the main law, and that plural marriage is just a, a occasional kind of thing, which is a real reversion from what was said in the 19th century. The Smiths, they all got, they all got along. It wasn't perfect. The letters show there was plenty of tension, but I think they got along in part 
Um, Bathsheba had a very small number of children. Lucy, none <clears throat> survived. I mean, it's a very complex household. It's interesting as you look at the letters, but they're legendary for getting along. They also really didn't live together very often. And there are others, the Smoots, Margaret Smoot, that household was supposed to be very harmonious. <coughs> Margaret said it was a great trial, but she really believed polygamy was a school to make saints. And she had uh, one child, uh, she had abandoned her husband and then married um, Abraham Smoot as his first wife and had no more children, had no children with Abraham. But essentially, uh, some of the children of the other wives she claimed as hers. So it was a solution for infertility for some people. It had economic values. It's, a, it's really complicated, but they believed God wanted them to do it. I don't think you can understand how it survived um, unless you recognize that they believed God wanted them to do it. Yes? Would you say that the pressure was greater on the men or the women in the early days to engage in plural marriage? Um, well, it depends on the men and it depends on the women. Uh, there was a lot of pressure on men. I mean, Samuel Woolley, Brigham Young, essentially said, go get another wife. It took him a long time to do that. Even though he believed it was the right thing to do, maybe he couldn't find one who wanted to marry <laughs> I don't know. It's hard to say. There was a pressure on anyone who was a leader. Because obviously, only about 15% of men at any one time could have more. I mean, the numbers, everybody can't live plurality. It doesn't work. It's a lot of pressure during the so-called Reformation in the mid-1850s, 55, 56, and people were marrying very young, um, you know, te marrying teenagers, which can't have been a great thing. But the, the safety valve is divorce. And it was, it was there, and there seemed to be no stigma. So, choice, consent, matter. Okay. Um, is there one last yeah. over here? Yes. I just had a, a quick question that you, as a historian, looking at the diaries that other people are keeping, how do you think that the fact that the media so feeds back to women, especially now, in so many different facets of their lives, how do you think that is changing people's, the women's version of their own history? I, my grandmother kept the diary that you described, yeah. which is, and today, you know, the weather was clear. You know, finished the garden, did this, and it was, and I'm certain, as you mentioned it, and I hadn't, that that was her way of dealing with so much, in many ways, everydayness. Yes. So how does the availability of new media different how, from how that? This, how do you think this changes how you keep your diary? And I assume you keep on. Oh, how do I... I'm not sure I totally answered the question. How how does the how do how does the new media change how I understand the early diaries? How do you think? Are, I you are keeping a diary. 
No, oh, I don't know. Keep the diary. I read other people's. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there, there she knows better. Well, in that, I'm going to get a T-shirt of that. Yeah. <laughs> yes, in fact, I have great T-shirts. I read other people. No. The question is, would be, do, you, do you think that you see any change in the diaries that are kept, given the intrusion? of the media in so many aspects of our lives. The intrusion of, I don't think, Facebook. I don't see a correlation okay. there. Facebook. I think Facebook. that yeah. Facebook is a kind of diary. So future, uh, future historians and present day sociologists, believe me, are studying Facebook yeah. and archiving that materials, email, so on. So you're absolutely right. The medium changes it changes the way we look at, um, the way historians can access the past. I use every kind of day-by-day -day record I could find, which would include minutes of meetings, um, signed autograph albums and dated, signed and dated poems. Um, I'm into, you know, I was just meticulous about contextualizing in the moment. Um, even a quilt is a very important source which has signed and dated squares from individual women in, in the book. But um, history is written using many kinds of sources and the new media, it means your, somebody's birth is recorded on video and maybe not posted on YouTube. <laughs> But so many aspects of life are being deeply recorded. So the problem will probably be the volume. If, you know, there's. It's a great question. You got an answer, Jan, to that question. All right. Okay. Thank, Thank you, you, Laurel. Very much. for listening to the Dialogue podcasts in honor of our 50th anniversary jubilee. If you enjoy listening, please consider becoming a subscriber to Dialogue by visiting dialoguejournal.com or supporting us with a donation. Thank you.